Noise Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation, your home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales, with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of moral aptitude in times of moral turpitude. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I certainly did. A friend sends me a text the other day, guess who I saw today? And I was in a trauma case, and I didn't get back to him, and I completely forgot about it till this morning. I was wondering, who could it have been? So I texted him back, who did you see? And he said, everyone I looked at, I'm like, oh my gosh, another dad joke. Well, you know, there's nothing like a good joke. And that was nothing like a good joke. But today's guest is no laughing matter. We're going to put one foot in front of the other and talk to who else? Foot and ankle fellowship trained surgeon, Dr. Kent Ellington from Ortho Carolina in Charlotte, North Carolina. Just an awesome discussion about a lot of things below the knee. Another thing that's no laughing matter is something that happened to a friend of mine many years ago. And before I get into that wild story, let's establish Device Nation as a judgment-free zone, okay? I am not your dad. What you do in your personal time is between you and and your mother. So what we're going to delve into today in our continuing series on character is a road fraught with danger, and that is decisions of morality made while on the clock as a device rep. And before I tell the story once more, don't throw a delay a game flag on me here. I want to introduce uh, the audience to a phrase that I see on blogs a lot, and it's called a sticky post. Uh, Unlike regular posts that kind of move off the front page with time and more posts, uh, a sticky post basically stays on the front page until the admin removes it. Got it? All right, let's get to this story friend of mine was on a sales training trip. He was gone from home for a week. And the very last night before he was to shove off that morning on a plane ride back, uh, his phone rang while he was laying in bed trying to get to sleep. And it was from a lady who identified herself as Patty and that she was in the bar waiting for him. And he was scratching his head, rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, going, what in the world is this all about? Turns out she was employed in the world's oldest profession, and somebody had subsidized the evening's entertainment, so to speak, for this particular rep. So this rep did what any happily married man would do. He called his wife (laughs) and said, you're not going to believe this. She said she's down in the bar, she's wearing such and such, and... Sure enough, uh, as he peeked downstairs and could see into the bar, there she was. He sheepishly had told the 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 girl in the bar that you know I've got a family, I got kids, and and all these things. And and then my friend told me that she got kind of sheepish about it as well. You know, I have a son, and on and on. So that went nowhere. So that was just a real head scratcher for my friend for so many years. What was that all about? Uh, he had finished number one in the class that week. Was it a a uh, quote-unquote reward for a job well done, or what else could it have been? Not sure. Well, what was really interesting about this story, 20-some years would go by, and my friend was talking to another acquaintance of his, and this particular distributor that they both worked for had done similar things, putting people in situations where there was something that could hang over them, kind of a sticky post, so to speak. And uh, my friend just 
called me up and said, you know, had I made that decision to go along with Patty all those years ago, I wonder what my life would have turned out to be. And, and, and if it was worst case scenario and the distributor had actually set me up for this to, to have something over me, what would that look like? And I thought, wow, what a, what a crazy, crazy story. So put your finger on that story for a second and let me throw one more at you. A friend of mine was at a national sales meeting. And a bunch of guys had a condo together, and somebody had a great idea of employing, you guessed it, yet another uh, woman engaged in the world's oldest profession. And uh, he began to tell me the story of what happened and some of the names that were involved. Again, judgment-free zone. This, This behavior is not between you and me or between me and these people. Just a teachable moment. So what is the the teachable moment? So let's look at that concept again of the sticky post. So what's really crazy as I was putting this together, a scrub tech tells me the story of back home where he lived, being out with some reps uh, with another company and one particular rep. And I knew this guy, uh, how he had to pull him out of a strip club at like six in the morning in Las Vegas uh, so they could make their flight home. So as I was pondering all this stuff, I I thought the concept of the sticky post in relationship to our, uh, let's just call it moral aptitude, uh, comes into play. So let's define a few things. Moral aptitude. Don't look it up because we kind of made it up for the purposes of the show just to to make a point. Aptitude is a natural ability to do something. And moral, it's concerned with the principles of right and wrong behavior. So we need a natural ability to be concerned with the principles of right and wrong behavior, that it just flows naturally and easy for us. Why? We've talked about it a bunch. Uh, Medical device is peculiar in that it is a career that is a function of proximity plus time. You are working with the same people over and over and over in close proximity. And like it or not, When you make a bad decision on this moral front, it is a sticky post. And there is the possibility that you're going to have to live that thing down for the rest of your career. Case in point, this scrub tech who's telling me this story about this rep with another company that he had to pull out of a strip club, he's been telling this story behind this guy's back for 10 years. It's a sticky post. It just kind of freaks you out if you think about it. These guys that were availing themselves of adult entertainment, so to speak, their names are permanently a sticky post with all the people that happened to be there and the people that were there that have chosen to talk about it. It should put a little fear in all of us that uh, the sticky post that we want is only positive things and nothing as salacious as that, right? So concerning ourselves with the principles of right behavior and just trying to make it a natural ability, a natural thing that flows from us uh, in this job, it acts like the R value of the insulation in your wall, right? It's like a insulation as to what people say about you, and it helps avoid the sticky posts 
especially the negative ones, because that's the ones people remember, isn't it? The sticky posts are not usually the positive things. It's just some horrific thing that happened, right? That's the thing they talk about for the next 10, 15 years. And and we don't want to be that person uh, that has that on our name, because a good name is the most valuable product in your bag. Many reps that I know in this space have done this long enough to see their kids come up into this space. And the thing that just scares the living daylights out of me is that there being some sticky post about your behavior still floating around when your kids are coming up into this thing and and they hear it. It just gets me all cringy. So what do we do with this information? How does this affect us this coming week? Well, one of the things that uh, I recalled as I was putting this together in my days in the Rotary Club was their four-way test. It's something we would always say at the end of every Rotary Club meeting that was actually pretty good. Uh, number one, is it the truth? Number two, is it fair to all concerned? Uh, number three, will it build goodwill and better friendships? And four, will it be beneficial to all concerned? And I, and I think if we follow that four-way test in some of these moral decisions while we're on the clock as device reps, and, and we choose the right path, uh, that we really can develop some insurance against the historical sticky note, so to speak, that dogs us till the day we decide to leave, uh, and, and ensures that as far as we can control things, that what people say about us when we're not around is nothing but positive, uh, and, and that our name elicits a positive response when we're brought up and we're not around. Well, I'm going to say wonderful things about our next guest, Dr. Kent Ellington from Ortho Carolina in Charlotte, North Carolina, accomplished foot and ankle surgeon, NASCAR team physician, a lot of awards, published articles and patents and startups, just a real entrepreneur spirit. And I love that stuff. And I'm so thankful that we get an opportunity uh, to know this gentleman's name and what he's up to. So welcome to the show, Dr. Kent Ellington. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on, and it's an honor to be able to chit-chat, go through some of these things. I've listened to your podcast and you do an incredible job, and it's kind of cool to be on this lineup. Dr. Ellington, I'm so thankful to have you on Device Nation as an accomplished and well-published Fellowship-trained foot and ankle surgeon. I look forward to asking you about your practice at Ortho Carolina, being a NASCAR team physician, your startup projects, nanospheres. I just love saying that word, Cirrus. But first, let's go back to Charlotte. What put you on the path to medicine? You know, sometimes I think about that question because I've been asked that by other people before, and it sounds maybe a little crazy, but that was never the plan. And, and I look back on it, it's weird how you get some how you get to places in life, sometimes planned and unplanned. So it was never, never in my cards to be a doctor. No one in my family is a doctor in the healthcare field at all. My dad was the first guy to go to college in our family. So when he's a mechanical engineer, he went to NC State. Growing up, he inspired me to learn. He taught me about a lot of things, about how to build things. And I, I can't remember a time I didn't have a screwdriver or a hammer in my hand growing up as a young child. And I remember building a deck on the back house and re redoing the shingles on the roof and learning how to weld and use a torch to cut. And we built everything from furniture to, you know, a trailer pool 
uh, wood that we would go cut down and split for firewood for the winter. And so at that time, you know, I kind of look back on it and think, you know, I, I started getting an appreciation of how things work, how to fix things, how to put things back together. My dad, being an engineer, was also really good at trying to figure out how to make things better. Uh, he, he worked for Duke Power, now Duke Energy, for many years and became kind of well-known in that fossil hydro division of the energy business of being a guy who was a problem solver and, and make things better for the company. And so that was inspiring to me. And so I kind of wanted to follow in his footsteps, become an engineer. And although I like fixing things, I didn't find advanced mathematics to be too enjoyable. And so I quickly, after a calculus, realized that although I did okay in it, I didn't really love it. When I was in high school, this would be in 1992, took a health occupations class, did 10th grade biology, and loved biology and loved the exposure to the health field. And that class was just an exposure of, you know, this is what a doctor is, this is what a nurse is, this is what a phlebotomist is, you know, a technician. It was everything. And my teacher, and I've, I've now... One of my famous sayings that I tell my fellows, my residents, my kids, is that you are who you are because of someone else. Miss Hunsucker was my 10th grade biology teacher. I don't even know where she is these days. Uh, Miss McKeever was my health occupation teacher. And those two teachers, you know, that's what's so powerful about our education system and mentors in your life. So here I am, you know, 16 years old, and they kind of set this path. Uh, me being interested in the biological sciences. So then I go to college and I go to UNC Charlotte and I don't even know why I did this, uh, um, but I I decided to major in biology. And uh, because of that interest, I decided to major in biology and towards the end of my undergraduate career, I got exposed to one of my professors who was a microbiologist, Dr. Hudson, yet another teacher that changed my life. And he was doing research on bone infection. So here I am now, 21 years old, and I'm in his research lab doing research on bone infection. And and I don't even know if this is a big problem or a small problem or what kind of problem it is. I'm just sucking bacteria out of pipettes and trying to figure out how to treat bone infection because I don't have any perspective of what this really means clinically. I remember thinking one day, like, who are the people that treat bone problems and bone infections and injuries? And, And then I find out orthopedic surgeons. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. What do they do? I got interested in that and started following an orthopedic surgeon around town and working in the ER. So now I'm a senior in college and decide I want to be a doctor that does this fix things. Kind of like growing up, I learned how to fix things. So then I have to apply to med school, take the MCAT. That's a year process. So I decided to stay on and get my master's in microbiology and immunology and stay in his lab and continue to do research on bone infection. Then I finally go to medical school at Wake Forest. And what's cool is that that bone infection research that I did then uh, really uh, carried into med school and worked on that stuff all through med school. And that was the integral part of me getting into an orthopedic surgery residency and starting my career. So a little bit of a long-winded story there, but to me, it makes me look back and be humbled that these small little events at the time added up to being a pretty significant thing over the years. It's always amazing to look back in your life and just see the steering currents Yeah, that, that took you this way or that. Speaking of that, you steered into a foot and ankle reconstruction fellowship at Mercy in Baltimore. What was the current that sent you that direction? So after Wake Forest Med School, I came to uh, Charlotte to do an orthopedic surgery residency at Carolina Medical Center. I come here. You know, it's interesting. 
you go into orthopedics and you think you know what you want to do, but then you get into residency and there's like nine different fields of orthopedics. There's joints, there's sports, tumor, and, you know, trauma, everything. And I remember um, one of the first rotations that I had as a second year resident. So I just finished my internship year. I did two months of orthopedic trauma and then I did two months of foot and ankle. So here I am, this young, you know, orthopedic resident, and I go into the foot and ankle service in my first rotation uh, as a orthopedic surgery resident off of internship and off of orthopedic trauma, which can be pretty grueling, is with Dr. Bob Anderson, who used to be here in Charlotte. Now he's in Green Bay. For those who don't know, he's kind of the, one of the godfathers of foot and ankle, extremely uh, famous and well-known for his care of professional athletes specifically, but many other things as well. But that's why he's kind of, you know, the ESPN doc. And so here I am, you know, working with him. And um, he just made it interesting and fascinating, and he made it look easy. I got an appreciation of biomechanics and deformity, and I thought this is kind of cool. And then the next month, I was with Dr. Bruce Cohen, who just got elected last week to be the president of the AFAS, which is our footing society. So I had two back-to-back months with just absolute studs in our field who were incredible and generous and nice and very easy to work with. And so that was a quick introduction of, man, I really like this. So then I go through residency and I kept c- coming back and comparing the other rotations. And I jokingly make stabs at my partners, you know, that um, those who do joint replacements kind of, I kind of joke, you know, it's uh, two surgery, you know, one joint, two bones, not too hard. And the sports guys, you know, you're just looking at a camera all day. And uh, not granted, I'm just making fun, but I did find that foot and ankle was pretty complex. It took a lot of thinking, a lot of customization, if you will. You know, not, not every problem fixed the same way in every person. It requires a lot of diagnostic skills and examination and history taking and imaging. And I just like the way it made my brain think. It kind of put me back into those kind of engineering days. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. And at the same time, it was an exploding field. Kind of neat. So Anderson, Dr. Anderson, um, when he was in Charlotte, CMC Orthopedic Surgery Residency was the first residency in the country that had a dedicated rotation for orthopedic residents to do foot and ankle. And so from that, that grew. And now, you know, every orthopedic surgery residency has one and there's multiple fellowships. We have a fellowship here in Charlotte. People regard it as the best orthopedic foot and ankle fellowship in the country. And we have four fellows per year. And I'm just amazed to be, I was just unbelievably honored to been in practice for 11 years now and to be a part of this community here in town we have several great partners with dr davis and sean and erwin and just and jones and just brought on a new guy sam ford to be a part of what's considered kind of the mechanical here in charlotte it's been really really cool i went through so many years in my career where i don't think i ever crossed a fellowship trained foot and ankle surgeon's path in the hallway ever at the hospital and now uh, I'm seeing that more and more. Was I not paying attention all along, or is it is it kind of a recent phenomenon? Yeah, of the fields of orthopedics, this is considered the youngest one. It's um, there's been fellowships in sports and hand and joints and tumor and trauma for many decades, but really the last probably 25 years ago, it kind of, it kind of started, and in the last 15 years, it's really really started moving, and in the last five to ten, it's kind of exploded. Before we get too far away from the the MCAT word that you threw out there, I know you were an MCAT instructor at one point in your life. And would you have any advice to would-be doctors out there in the audience uh, looking at this somewhat foreboding exam in front of them? My advice to people in those steps of life 
taking these large national exams like this, which are very important in your future success and getting into the specialty you want to get into, is um, practice exams. So I took, nowhere exaggerating, and people who, who do this routinely and are good at, good at this will tell you they did the same thing, but I mean, probably 3,000 questions for my step one and 3,000 questions for the MCAT, just over and over and over. Old tests, practice tests, practice exams, buy the books to have the test questions. Because you can't sit there and really study and learn, you know, biochemistry all over again. But, so you got to you gotta make your brain work in, in the realm that it's being tested in. And that's just take practice questions. I mean, literally thousands of practice questions. So tell me about your practice at Ortho Carolina there in Charlotte. What do you see the most of week to week? And, and what cases do you enjoy doing the most? My practice week to week is... My, is 100% foot and ankle. I still do take level one trauma call. And so when I'm on call, you know, that's open femurs and tibias, and gunshot wounds, and bad car wrecks, things like that. Uh, I operate three days a week. I have clinics two days a week. It used to be like that. But as you get busier and busier and start seeing more and more cases that are become operative quicker, just because of the kind of the funnel effect, three and two now. And in the clinic, I, I do see everything. And Sometimes that's a little frustrating because it can be, you know, plantar fasciitis and an olive bunion, um, or it can be, you know, limb salvage, crazy Charcot or bad trauma. I really enjoy fractures and fusion procedures. I like taking care of trauma patients. Their injuries sometimes can be really difficult. If you are good at it and have some slick skills, you can take someone with a really bad injury and give them a better outcome than the book would say. And that's really rewarding. I love doing fusions of certain procedures, usually because it's not that I don't do other surgeries, but usually those procedures are big deformities. So arthrodesis fusion procedures are required. So I, I like big surgery. Do ankle replacements. I do. I take care of a lot of teams and a lot of sports. So a big part of my practice is kind of sports foot and ankle. So I do a lot of ankle arthroscopy and ligament repair and tendon repair and all levels of athletes from you know high school, college, professional. And that's really rewarding as well. And and then there's the kind of the forefoot stuff that we that we do, which is you know, bunions and hammer toes. And we kind of joke about it in our field because it can be difficult because it seems like small surgery, but you know the majority of people with these problems are ladies that are sometimes be tough to take care of because uh, the shoe wears and the activities they do, and, but that's the. It's kind of a. You know, one of my partners says it's no one. No one likes it because it's hard. Uh, even though it sounds kind of gimmicky, a four-foot bunion hammer surgery is, is difficult, and uh, it could be fun as well. Well, speaking of sports, and we can't talk about sports in Charlotte in the same sentence without bringing up NASCAR. I've been a huge NASCAR fan for so many years. Who's your favorite driver? And what's it like working as a, a teen physician with those groups? Yeah, so NASCAR, Charlotte and NASCAR are synonymous. And uh, there are, I think, all but one or two teams, the 30-some teams are headquartered here or in the local area. It's really cool because those guys taking care of multiple pro athletes, different fields, basketball, baseball, football, et cetera. The NASCAR community, is it's a little different. You know, a lot of these guys have really cool backgrounds. The majority of the the team for NASCAR are guys who really love mechanics and, you know, going fast and fixing cars. And I, my dad taught me how to rebuild cars when I was a teenager. So we, we restored a couple of classic cars. And so when I see these guys, you know, we'll end up somehow on a 10 minute diversion talking about how to overhaul an engine um, <laughs> more than their foot problem. It's been, it's been a really cool honor to be able to do this. And when, what people don't realize is that when you decide to take care of the team, it sounds like glitz and glamour for NASCAR specifically, you know, 
the rock star is the driver, right? But that's the one guy versus like a football team. There's 80, 80 rock stars. Uh, the driver, you know, he, he rarely or she rarely comes in. It's their team that comes in a lot. So a lot of the pit crew guys and a lot of these guys are former NFL players or former college basketball and football players. They're extreme athletes to be able to do what they do, jump the wall, carry these the fuel and the tires. You know, their time, they work out every single day, just like they did when they were a pro or college athlete. They have a gym in their facility. They, uh, they do yoga. They do weight training. They, they do stretching. It's a, it's a requirement. I mean, every single day they train to be quick because it's in NASCAR, it's a second, you know. So if you're just a little second slower, you lose the race. And um, so everything matters. The, if the driver's going fast, but the pit stop's slow, that kills that, that kills the race. So we see a lot of those guys, you know. But when you take care of a team, it's it's everybody. So uh, anybody part of that family, it could be you know the janitor of the, of the of the shop, or it could be someone's friend's neighbor's cousin. And so they all get kind of VIP treatment, and um, so it can be a little overwhelming at times. I really I've really enjoyed watching. You know, to answer your question about favorite drivers, I, I could be in trouble. <laughs> you know, in Charlotte for saying this kind of thing. But I'll, I will say this. It's funny. I, I have patients who come see me because I'll take care of a certain team or not, you know, and they're like, I'm coming to you because you take care of this team. And I'll have patients come see me and they'll say, I hate that team that you take care of. But if, if they if they chose you, then you have to be good. So I'm, I'm going to see you anyway. And uh, it's kind of funny, but I've enjoyed watching Jimmy Logano and uh, in his career, you know, he's been kind of a cool guy. You know, Earnhardt Jr. has always been a – I grew up in North Carolina, so his dad was always a cool dude. I like watching and Kyle Petty, his uh, senior. You know, I, I like watching him when I was young. And then Rusty Wallace has been a cool dude. And these are – this would be like you trying to be a Redskins fan and a Cowboys fan at the same time because some of these fans hate each other. But I luckily I've been, I've been more just to enjoy the sport you know, more than a particular uh, driver. But it's been it's definitely – it's been cool. What I did learn, these people have some of the brightest engineers working for them. And so they have like aerodynamic engineers, they got mechanical, they got uh, all these people who are involved in the fabrication of the car. And it's a, it is a science. And every single par, car part has a number and an OEM and certain parts have to be changed every race. And some parts are changed every two races or three races. And it's just incredible. And like you could, you could eat off the floor. And these people's manufacturing facilities, because it is so clean, and they have like hundreds of engines on the on the shelf. It's just amazing. I've been I've been able to get get some private tours of these places, and it's just amazing. But one of the uh, he was the wind tunnel the wind tunnel engineer. And he told me that you know the other fields the other sports they they play three four five months a year, but NASCAR they race like forty eight weeks a year. And so he said NASCAR is all about family, just not your own, because you're never at home. And I thought about that, and I was like, you know, that's really tolling because you. You, you leave on Thursday, you go to somewhere and you get everything ready and prepped up and you race on Sunday and you get back Monday and then you do it again, almost, almost every week of the year. And it's quite incredible the sacrifice these people make. You know, everybody loves to look at this, these things and think it's just all about you making a lot of money and it's easy money, but um, there's a lot of hard work behind it. I remember a great line by Dale Earnhardt Sr. They said, what do you think about all these people that boo you all the time? And he said, well, the worst thing is when they don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was always good for some some homespun wisdom there. Yeah. 
So let's go into the clinical corner, doctor. Total ankle lateral approach versus anterior approach. What are your thoughts? Well, I was trained on the anterior approach. I switched to the lateral approach and I've moved back to the anterior approach. One of the things I know you want to talk about is kind of my product development business stuff. And so a startup company has asked me and a couple other doctors to, to create a total ankle for them. And I've been in that process for the last three years. So actually, our first case is going in two weeks from now, FDA approval. Congratulations. Yeah, FDA approval a few months ago. So we're stoked about this. It's been a lot of work. And that is the anterior approach. So I think that's uh, kind of the, my preference these days. Biologics, uh, I'm seeing that kind of exploding across every discipline these days. And I know that uh, it certainly has a home in foot and ankle. What's your what's your go-to? So biologics uh, is extremely common in foot and ankle, only second to spine. And for pretty much any complex case, we all use biologics for our surgeries. I typically use osteoamp for my bone graft, but I, and I often use autograft as well. And then if I want a little kickstart, I'll use some uh, BMA kind of stem cell spun down if I can do it at the hospital. And I use a lot of augment for high-risk patients. Brostrom uh, procedure. My my daughter had to have that done. Some ankle instability. And I know uh, there's fiber tape. There's maybe some other ways to skin that cat out there. What are your thoughts on uh, treating ankle instability? So I've published several things on, on Brostrom and ankle instability. It's super common. My fellows tell me that it's I do more scope restrooms in Charlotte than, than the other guys, and I don't, I don't know maybe it's the sports feel that I have, but I, I do a ton, and I, and it's a passion of mine. And over the years, transitioned to using a tape called Artolon. They have a product called FlexBand that we uh, have helped them develop a system to augment the brostrum procedure. And what's great about it, it gives you the strength that you need without the stiffness and not to speak poorly about other products, but the other products can be just as tight as a chain. And what this does is it gives you the immediate strength that you want uh, along with flexibility and which is what a normal ligament has. And so the Artelon flex band has been, we've been using it a lot here in Charlotte, me and my partners for the last uh, two years for a lot of our brochure. What are your thoughts on an MRI when uh, it's clearly some bone marrow lesions going on? And they're having pain from that. What's your uh, what's your go-to? If you're talking about backfilling it with uh, certain types of uh, bone cement, we don't find that to be too effective for the talus. Uh, I know that's been a common thing for a tibial plateau or other joints, but the talus is a weird bone. It can't take the pressure of injecting that, that type of material into the, the body. I would caution using that as a as a as a technique, and if you're going to do it, um, be sure to don't overdo it, because we've seen cases lead to Taylor AVN, and we think it's because it engorges the bone and cuts off the blood supply. Young active patient comes into your clinic, advanced arthritis in the ankle. They don't want a fusion. They're too young for a total. What are your thoughts on that patient? Uh, we're going to have to educate them. So. <laughs> Uh, if, if, they're, if you being young, like 30 or 40, it, it really, there are, there are all kinds of things to consider, but those things often don't work and they really need to consider ankle fusion as their surgical procedure. There are some really cool braces out there that the military designed that we can now use in a civilian world called IDEO braces that are incredible. 
we prescribe those a lot and it, it can avoid surgery for some time. And then we maybe buy some time and, and, um, get them to an older age so they can get a replacement. Can you convert a fusion to a total? Yes, we, we, we can. Several people have done that. We have about, I think a dozen of those in Charlotte. My senior partner, Dr. Davis has got the most experience of that where we don't know why, but some people get ankle fusion and still have pain. And so you can take the fusion down. We call it a fusion takedown and convert it to a total ankle. I remember when the Da Vinci came out and it was uh, being touted for several procedures and, and, you know, rightfully the company started looking for more indications, you know, where, where else can we use this technology? And I see the same thing going on with robotics and orthopedics, more and more applications coming out. Do you see any role for this technology in foot and ankle? Right now we're using a CT scan of the ankle for ankle replacements. And we can actually have the company create customized cutting jigs that are print 3D printed that we can pin to the leg. And once we pin it to the leg, then we can do the cuts. And the cuts then give us the exact cuts that we need to get the ankle in the proper uh, placement and alignment. And that's been a kind of a cool thing. And Right Medical is kind of paved that way. The company that I talked about that's developing the total ankle is coming out soon. We're doing that as well. And so they do it for the total shoulder, reverse shoulder. You know, and I think once we start to really get more and more of that data figured out, we'll be able to take it to the next level. I'm seeing augmented reality start to just creep into the reconstruction space. And I could see that application across a bunch of disciplines. You were telling me uh, earlier a, a great story about the a fighter pilot you knew. Can you share that story? That was just awesome. Yeah. So uh, as we mentioned earlier, I'm a pilot. I've been flying, flying for almost six years. My passion has been there my whole life, and I finally, I'm 44 now, and I finally decided to take it up in my late 30s. My dad was a pilot in the Air Force and flew in the Vietnam War, and I always was just enamored with flying. And so this uh, fighter pilot came to see me for a second opinion from uh, a base in uh, Florida, and he came up, and like always, I got sidetracked talking about flying. And so we spent almost 45 minutes talking about flying. He, he's a he has been in the Air Force for over 20 years, multiple tours in the Mideast, and now he's an instructor, and he instructs on F-16 and F-22. And they have a helmet. The helmet's $60,000, 60-0, for the helmet, and it's everything is inside their helmet. Their, their airspeed, their altitude, all the plane information, plus all their you know military functions, their missiles, their guns, their uh, how to lock on to a target on the floor, on the ground or in the air. And so it's just everything is there. And he was telling me that it's gotten so complicated and so much information that it can create spatial disorientation. And that the, when you look, when you're in your helmet, you can look down, you can see through the plane and see the ground. So you never, you never are really looking outside of the, the plane. You're always just looking in, you know, at the shield in front of you in the helmet. And he said, it's, it's, it's been such a sensory overload that they've had pilots uh, fly upside down and not even know it because you know they're just so trapped in their helmet. And he said they've even had people show up to tankers to refuel in midair upside down, and they got to tell the guy, "Hey, you got to you're inverted. You got to flip over." And I, and it's just incredible. And so the technology's there. You know, it's just super expensive, obviously, and the military can pay for it. So it's there. And like everything, usually what happens in the military, you know, ten years later, it'll be you know in our hands. So. Yeah, it's, it's some wild stuff out there. What did your dad fly in Vietnam? He flew C-47. He flew for the Special Forces. And it was called the Old Spooky or the Puffin Magic Dragon. If you 
put in C47, Puff Dragon, and YouTube, you'll see that they had this 50 cal and laid out as a gunship. Freaking 8,000 rounds a minute um, of just, uh, you know, hellfire. <laughs> and um, so he flew with them. He was there from 68 to 69. Yeah, won the Distinguished Flying Cross, which is the highest honor in the Air Force, on a, a wild mission where he saved a bunch of people's lives. And he was an incredible guy. He's, uh, he's 70. Five and when I got my license, he was the first guy I took up to fly with me, and he jumped in like it was nothing. And uh, we're actually flying tomorrow to go uh, to Virginia to get a cheeseburger. So that is awesome. Well, tell him I personally said thank him for his service. And my uncle was an MP in Vietnam, and he told me stories about one of the most entertaining things for them was to sit out at the post at night. And watch uh, Puff the Magic Dragon do it do its work. He said it looked like a, a laser beam coming from the sky. He said it was just amazing. It does. It totally looks like a laser. Every fifth bullet's a tracer, and it's um, it looks like a laser. <laughs> and, and the sound that it made. I mean, it didn't sound like a gun at all. Nope. Um, exactly. I don't know why it's things like maybe it's just my middle school boy. <laughs> I just think that's the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, same here. You brought up plantar fasciitis uh, earlier, and I remember hearing about the shockwave therapy. And uh, my wife had it and told me that it was the single most painful shot she'd ever received in her life. Uh, what's what's the latest out there on treating this this condition? So plantar fasciitis is one of the most common reasons patients present to the doctor of all things, medicine, back pain being one as well. It's terrible. I mean, it's it could be really debilitating. It's definitely aggravating. The mainstay of treatment is focused on stretching and physical therapy of the foot, the arch, and the, the calf muscle. And if, if all those things fail, uh, shockwave therapy is an option. There are percutaneous procedures that exist today with some mixed results. There's the classic surgery where we actually open up and release the plantar fascia, which I'm not too fan, too much of a fan of. And so, you know, unfortunately, in 2020, over 12,000 papers published on plantar fasciitis, we still don't have a really uh, strong cure for it. What do you think the greatest need for product development right now is in the foot and ankle space? I think either need or maybe like I think the future is it's custom implants. And there's a company that I work with that's spun out of Duke University. Uh, Ken Gall started it. He's a brilliant PhD engineer who's done a lot of innovative things in orthopedics. And so they are doing custom implants and it's, it's incredible. I've, I've done about 10 cases now with them and the cases that I've done with them were, were not even possible two years ago. Some of these things we're talking about, you know, Hey, you might need an amputation and, you work with their design engineering team and you're able to, you know, print whatever you want. You can print a talus, you can print a half of a tibia, you can print part of the midfoot. I mean, it's just incredible. And they print these structures and then you put that in to replace the missing bone or dead bone or whatever. And you're able to restore the patient's anatomy. It's just uh, it's quite remarkable. You've been involved in quite a few startup companies. So tell me about that. Anything in particular you're super excited about lately? Yeah. So one of, I guess my passion outside of taking care of patients is developing companies that can take care of patients in the future. It's been really exciting to be surrounded by really smart people that are both in the medical space and the business space. And I've learned a lot on the job and I've, I've been a part of multiple startups uh, from the very groundbreaking 
you know, day one conversation. I've been a part of multiple like series A and B startups where I've invested in them. And then through that, I've learned and I've started some of my own companies as well. It's been just an absolute joy to be able to take an idea, you know, from paper to uh, implant. I've been fortunate enough to work with some really cool companies over the years and um, I've been able to design a little over a hundred different implants that I've designed that are out being sold across the world. And um, I've been, I was able to uh, make a pretty big splash in the orthopedic space, the clinical space with some nitinol staples that I designed a few years ago that kind of really taken off and been a, a neat uh, addition. And you know, practically, I, I think about a joy in knowing that I did something that really does help patients and help surgeons. And, um, and we got a few things in the docket now that are going to be coming out later this year and next year that are, I think, some pretty groundbreaking opportunities as well. So you know, it's been fun and I couldn't have done it without all the people are with me and around me helping. I'm bearing down on my third patent, and you're up to 17. Congratulations on that. Uh, that's quite a journey, getting something from a, a napkin, so to speak, to a, to a U.S.-issued patent. Any any particular one that jumps off the page to you that was something that really uh, you were really excited to get across the finish line? My first ever patent was in nanoparticles. It's uh, it's it's treading water. It's not dead, but it's not it's not doing great. But it was my first, and it started when I was in grad school. The whole point of that patent is to be able to provide local antibiotics to a wound or a bone, kill the bacteria. It totally works. It's just the logistics of that has been difficult to get into the market space. So that's the one that it would be really cool if I can make that work. If there's any biopharmaceutical companies out there, give me a call. <laughs> um, my very first patent that uh, that I drew that you know was patented it ended up in, in a patient. It was a three-legged staple that I designed, so that was kind of cool because it was the first one that actually got somewhere. And, and then I'm, I'm working on one right now that we're back and forth with the patent office that has been really cool. And if it if we get it and it's one of the startup companies that I've started, I think it's we're going to make a really big impact in medicine in the next few years. So that's going to be the most. I think that's going to be the most important. I can, we can have a podcast too and we'll talk about that one today. One company that uh, I've seen some stuff on out there in the, in the internet space is Curvebeam. Tell me about that. It just seems like a really interesting technology. Yeah, Curvebeam. So we've had, so Curvebeam is a uh, in office weight bearing CT scanner that we have. We got it about five years ago, I believe. We're one of the first centers in the country to get it. What's great about it is that it's in your office. So you, you, know, you can have your patient get it and you can have the patient come back. And it takes, 10 minutes to get pre-approval. The scan takes 90 seconds and they're back in your in, their, in the room and you're talking about the result. So it's quick. It's one-tenth the radiation. So it's a you know safer in that regard. It's one millimeter cuts. It's super fine detail. And for us, it's really important because it's, it's weight-bearing. And so weight-bearing x-rays are critical for foot and ankle deformity analysis. Now I'm able to get a weight-bearing CT scan, which gives me a tremendous amount of information, helps with pre-op planning, diagnosis, we can do it in postoperative to look at the position and fusion and osteotomies. And now that company has a one for the knee, they have one for the hip. Likewise, weight bearing, which could be great for our trauma and total joint surgeons to be able to get better information. They got for the wrists, I think they got one for the neck. So they're really expanding their technology. 
it's, it's been a game changer. I, it's, I can see a patient, get a CAT scan, come up with a plan, everything, kind of one-stop shop. And it's tremendously cheaper. Like, if I send a patient to the hospital, I hate not to be mean to the hospitals, but obviously they have a lot of overhead and whatnot, but it's about four or five times cheaper than the hospital. And it's faster, and it's less radiation, and it's weight-bearing. From the profit standpoint, you know, the practice who owns the curbing, as we do, we, we make money off the CT scan versus the hospital vacancy. So you got a better, cheaper system, and it's it's been it's been revolutionary for the clinical field. One thing I try to do with this podcast, Dr. Ellington, is always bring things that I think uh, have value, not only to the rep, but to the surgeons that listen. And uh, as we're all staring at a COVID-sized hole in the ground financially from, from all this, uh, this particular product caught my eye because of just what you said. Instead of sending that revenue stream across the street, being able to keep it in-house and to get that information in a more timely manner, it just seemed to, it seemed to tick off a lot of boxes for me. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's it's a win-win. Podiatrists are ubiquitous. I see their shops all over the place. And, and I get people asking, you know, what is the difference between a podiatrist and a fellowship-trained foot and ankle surgeon? And I know it may just, some things may be obvious, but I would love your answer coming from the fellowship-trained side. Sure. There are orth- orth- orthopods, foot and ankle orthopods. You have a little chip in their shoulder against podiatrists and then vice versa. And so I've learned that it's probably smart not to have that kind of relationship because, you know, we all have mistakes. We all have problems. We all have people that have out of times and we all have different skill sets. So I'm, I'm one of the kind of orthopod foot and ankle guys. As my partners, we all feel the same way that there shouldn't be any kind of uh, animosity. That being said, there are differences. First difference is that we go to medical school. They do not. And that we go through orthopedic surgery residency, they do not. And so you know, we learn how to take care of the entire body, how that, how that all relates to each other. The more bones you operate on, the more surgeries you do as a resident, the better surgeon you become. So I'm on trauma call fixing a femur. It makes me a better foot and ankle surgeon. And when I learn how to fix a distal radius, it makes me a better foot and ankle surgeon. On and on and on. So... I do think that that exposure does help. And then, you know, after all that, we then go to after all the five years of orthopedic surgery residency versus just a few years of podiatry school, we do go another year of funding fellowship. So, you know, for me, from the time I graduated high school, going to practice for 17 years and then board certification two more. So it was a 19 year process for me to become what I am versus, you know, maybe a uh, four to six year process. You know, that being said, there's some really good podiatrists out there. Uh, majority of them don't operate, or if they do, they do tend to focus on the forefoot diabetic ulcers. There's definitely some dramatic differences in training. Uh, judging by your your CV, Dr. Ellington, you're clearly an entrepreneur trapped in a surgeon's body. Do you have any advice to to surgeons out there that share that that DNA with you? For me, the entrepreneurial part is kind of like twofold. One is product design and development. I do a lot of that, and the other is that startup VCPE stuff. For the product design part, my recommendation is be sure to protect your idea. And um, even even if you want to just get a provisional patent, it's pretty cheap, a few hundred bucks, and you have one year to hold that spot in the queue in the patent office to protect it. And then if you want to convert that to utility patent, that's a bigger deal, and that can range from $5,000, $20,000. But at least that provisional patent helps you keep it protected. 
And then um, if you do talk to someone without a patent, then make sure you sign an NDA to protect you. I mean, I don't think there's people out there that are viciously trying to steal people's ideas, but the last thing you're going to do is give your idea away to someone else. So NDA is critical when you're trying to share your idea. And then what I find is you really got to find the right partner. So you got to find the company that fits your idea the best because not every company is going to like your idea or going to find that your idea fits into their portfolio pipeline. And so that takes some background research, maybe, you know, and trying to figure out who's best for that. And so I've worked with many orthopedic companies. Uh, I've been fortunate to work with Medline, which is, you know, they make gowns and shoe covers. Well, six years ago, they reached out to me and asked me to design their entire foot and ankles uh, line. They didn't even have one. And so it's been great for me because they had nothing and we were able to kind of create it from start up. And it's been great because being a private company, they move really fast. And I find that working with the private companies is much more enjoyable because they, uh, they have money and they have ability to move quickly. Some of the big companies could take five or 10 years to really get things moving. And that's just not my DNA. So uh, I would advise smaller is better. So do you have any uh, parting advice to the reps that listen to the show? I mean, just judging by your uh, footprint across so many companies, I, I know you've dealt with a lot of people on my side of the aisle uh, over your career. What makes a good rep? What makes a great rep? Any advice to, to people in my line of work? Yeah, so you know, I've done product development for Arthrex and Wright and Synthes and Zimmer and Medjade. Similarly, I've been able to work with, with their reps as well. And what I find the thing to do being a rep is um, I think being on time, being available. It sounds like very simple, like, wow, which of course, Doc, but there's a lot that are not, right? And so, and so that's really helpful. And this sounds obvious too, but you know your product. Surgeons shouldn't rely on reps to do the surgery, but if you're in a tough situation and you're having a struggle, you know, you need everybody on your side helping you out. If uh, you ask a rep a question about something and they don't really know it, that's that's frustrating. And then I think something that seems to be lacking more and more, especially when you get a lot of young reps, is um, they don't understand the amount of work and stress that goes in and take care of a patient. You know, they can, sometimes I see some of the younger reps be a little, a little um, fly by the seat of the pants and it's kind of like a, it's like a job to them. And it's not a job to us, you know, good reps take it seriously. They really feel like they're a part of the care team and they want you to be successful and they'll do anything possible to make sure that surgery goes well. You might think that they're doing that just so they can get a sale and you use their product again. But the best reps that I ever met, I I get the genuine feel that they want to help me give the best care I I can to my patients. And when I feel like that's genuine, that person is, that person's gold. You know, I respect them. I want them on my team and I, I want that person around. And, and then I'll use their product because I know that I can trust them. So integrity is just critical. And if you make a mistake, I'd rather you just say, hey, I messed up and, and then we can you know, move on from it. But uh, I think those are just, this probably apply to anything in life. But uh, when you're in the OR and it's stressful, and I know you've been there before, uh, when everybody can, can jump on the ship and 
everything you can to give the patient the best care, then I can't ask for better than that. You know, there's the whole concept about make the most of every moment. And when I look at your career and look at your CV, you have so done that, just the incredible body of work the positions that you've held, the honors, the the published work, the patents, the the startups just across the board. It's very impressive and and everything has just been done in such an excellent manner. So my hat's off to you and I'm I'm really thankful that you came on the show to let my audience know who you are and and what you've gotten done and and um, a little bit about the foot and ankle space. It's just a, really a, a wonderful opportunity to get to hear from you. I appreciate those words. It's very kind of you. You know, I want I want to make a, an impression and make an impact to help patients in our field and uh it's been fun doing it. It takes a lot of work and sacrifice and have a great family, great wife who's understanding and uh, great kids. And uh, it's been a fun journey and I think there's more to do. What an awesome conversation. A couple names jumped out at me. Dr. Bob Henderson, uh, Mrs. Hunsucker, uh, Mrs. McKeever, Mr. Hudson. These were all people that were in Dr. Ellington's uh wheelhouse from a positive sticky post perspective, right? So as much as it is possible within our control, that's what we want to be to other people. We want to be writing a narrative on their life so that 20 years from now, when they're being interviewed for a podcast, they're talking about you. And you know, I'm speaking to the best of the best. It should be you. You are the people that people should be talking about, writing these wonderful things in their lives and having a positive impact. And I know that's going on. The reason behind the the PG-rated material today was just uh, real stories from the real trenches of this business for us all to reflect upon what happens when we make a poor decision uh, in this moral space and how it can just hang around and hang around your name for for 20 years. So that should make us all, and I'm counting myself here, make us all thoughtful and more intentional about the decisions we make every day, especially when it's something that could be a little edgy. Do I really want to see this around me for the next 20 years? Apply that four-way test to it. And I think at the end of the day, you'll end up making the right decision. Thank you so much for being a part uh, of today's show. I'm going to put links in the show notes with all the companies that Dr. Ellington was kind enough to share with us. A lot of cool gadgets in that space. If you like gadgets, foot and ankle is your space these days. So check that out. So I hope you all have an awesome week. And let's remember, is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerns? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? And will it be beneficial to all concerns?